Today's episode of True Crime Tuesday is brought to you by Mint Mobile. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash darkness. That's mintmobile.com slash darkness. Welcome into the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. I'm excited to have our guest on today. Uh, he is world famous, folks, and he has a brand new book out there on the Delphi murders. And I'll tell you, this case is probably just as confusing, twisting and turning as you could possibly get. The book we're talking about today, The Delphi Murders, The Quest to Find the Man on the Bridge, was written by the host of True Crime Garage, Nick Edwards, along with Brian Whitney. We're going to jump right into it today because there is so much to get into and so many different suspects to talk about as well. I tell you folks, I got to spend some time this weekend with this book. It is a fascinating book. And uh, I want to tell you a little bit about that book. And we'll get into it with the author here, Nick Edwards, in just a moment. I want to tell you a little bit about Nick. Nick is an ardent victim rights advocate, a crime researcher and writer, and of course, the co-host of the globally popular True Crime Garage podcast. And no, I will not spoil the surprise of who the captain is. You have to read the book to find out who he is. He is a founding board member of the Porchlight Project, an Ohio-based nonprofit providing free private investigation, DNA testing, and media support for unsolved cases of abduction and murder. He's also on the board of the All the Lost Girls, which is a nonprofit seeking justice for female strangulation cold cases in the U.S. Since 2014, Nick has contributed to and sponsored the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Folks, let's welcome to True Crime Tuesday, Nick Edwards. Hi, Nick. How are you? Great, Tim. How are you today? I'm very excited to be on Darkness Radio, True Crime Tuesday, chatting with you. Well, we're excited to have you, my friend. Um, you know, I I had a hard time getting through this book knowing that we're still at a, a crux point where we, we don't have a conviction. That, that to me is 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 one of the the toughest things, I think, uh, reading your book. It's it, uh, although we we I'm not going to jump to the end here. I want to I want to go through some of the um, some of the, the the points in the book, and then we'll we'll build from there. Um, but what's heart heartbreaking about this this case is the fact that you had two innocent girls at 13 and 14 years old who lost their lives, and a whole area of Indiana that mm -hmm. has been trying for years and including yourself that's been trying for years to find a killer or get these clues and it seems like the wheels of justice just grind incredibly slow first of all before we go any further tell me about your personal i guess we could call it uh frustration as to how slow those wheels are grinding even though you have a lot of people uh working behind the scenes to get this uh, conviction well, it was a very difficult investigation, a complicated investigation. And for all we know, you know, we're still waiting answers on a lot of the portions of this, of the, the case itself, the crimes committed, 
who done it and 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 the investigation itself those answers and those blanks will be filled in at some point but currently we sit here and we still do not know everything yes there's been a man that's been arrested and charged and awaiting trial for these horrible crimes but still a lot of questions left and um why did it take so long to find him you know it was five and a half years or so before an arrest was made and they had an image of the suspect they had him a video a brief video of him walking on the Monin high bridge they had audio of him saying guys down the hill and so what a weird investigation what a weird just situation and scenario altogether where you have a case that drags on and is unsolved without an arrest without charges brought forward for so long when you have the guy's image in his, in his voice I, that is a rarity in any homicide investigation but you know a lot of times we know this the the statistics and it pans this out all the time stranger on stranger crimes are by far the most difficult to investigate they are by far the most complicated because if they truly are strangers on both ends victim and suspect victim and perpetrator there is nothing really that connects the two of them other than the homicide itself and so typically tim and, and i know your listeners know this i'm not educating anybody here but typically person a gets angry at person b mm -hmm. and they know each other they run in the same circles they might even be related right and then person a kills person b that's how 90 5%, 97% of homicides tend to work. And so then police and investigators go and they investigate the crime and they, they start finding out real quickly who is probably responsible. Here, we don't have that scenario. We have two teenage girls that are out in a in a, in a beautiful setting, right? They're out on in what is the best way to describe it would be like a park, mm -hmm. some, like a, a state park or or a large park with a trail system and they were out walking on this abandoned old railroad bridge called the Monin High Bridge and out there in Delphi, Indiana which is about 250 miles uh, west of me they it's like a rite of passage this bridge it's, it's very typical for teenagers to go out there and walk across this bridge it's about from my understanding about 65 feet up in the air there's no rails to like hold on to you're you're just walking on the old rail the old railroad ties i guess mm -hmm. uh on this old rickety bridge um when i was a teenager i'd probably walk across it uh, as an adult no thank you <laughs> i'd probably take about get get me out about six seven feet and i'm turning around but yeah. um yeah from my understanding it's it's a rite of passage and unfortunately our our two victims Liberty German and Abigail Williams, they were out there that day in February. It was an unseasonably warm day for February. And Abby had walked across this bridge prior. Um, she, this was something she had done before. I don't know who with uh, my guess. She has she has an older sibling. And maybe uh, when we have older siblings, we tend to do things at a younger age. But Abby, her best friend, I mean, these two, you want to talk about BFF. This is BFF. 100 percent i mean these mm -hmm. two were were so close that if you saw abby without libby you'd go hey where's libby and if you saw the reverse you would you'd say hey where's abby it's you just expected to see the two of them together constantly 
And those it, it makes it all the more sad. Those two kids loved each other. And that day, Abby, it, you know, when if you break down their relationship, I would guess that, that Abby was, um, li that Libby was more of the bigger sister, if you had to choose one in the, the, the friendship. And she was taking her, her friend, Abby, out there. And Abby was going to walk the bridge for the first time. And um, they encountered pure evil out there on the trails that day. And and it's been headline news ever since. This this is one of those cases that happens in small town, middle America. And then next thing you know, we got digital billboards in 46 different states and over $200,000 reward that's that's put together by a lot of great people trying to find justice for these two girls and that included the indianapolis colts organization and uh former indianapolis colt pat mcafee yeah and th that that says something when when you have people stepping up it, the way they did and and not only that but right after the girls went missing you had quite a few people in the town who got together right away and we're talking within an hour or two got together and started canvassing the area looking uh, looking for them, which really says something as well. Because when you think about when you think about suburban urban type areas, when someone goes missing, even on an uh, on an Amber Alert, how many mm -hmm. people really go out and start looking for a missing child? Uh, you know, it's it's not many. But when you yeah. talk about a small community and you talk about that togetherness. It's it's really impressive the type of mobilization you can get in a community when when something like that happens. And in this situation, it was just as you said. It, it you know we have Libby who had a, a a good amount of extended family who was on the scene relatively early looking for the two girls. So they were supposed to be retrieved by Libby's father, picked up at the trailhead. Uh, drop off where where they were dropped off prior by Libby's sister. And so they were supposed to be picked up that afternoon a little after three ish. Uh, there wasn't an exact time for the, the pickup it, more of a rough time. And dad was going to text or call his daughter, pick them up. And then unfortunately that's when the flags start going up, right? The alarm mm -hmm. is raised. The girls are not where they're supposed to be, but they're teenage girls, and yeah. it's it, if I told you that it's incredibly uncommon for teenagers to not be where they're supposed to be, I'd be lying to you, right? right. I mean, it, it's it's probably more common that teenagers <laughs> are not where they're supposed to be, and so I I'm assuming that the families, like all of us, just thought, you know what, this is the last time they get to go out on their own, or, or sure enough, I let them go out, and now they're not they're not where they're supposed to be. They're taking advantage. And so we got the extended family of, of Libby German out there looking for the girls and they don't find anything. And um, it got dark that night and the, the sheriff and, and firefighters, there were other people out there searching that evening. But at some point, the sheriff had to call off the, the search and, and he caught a lot of flack for that over the years. But the, sh the sheriff has no way of knowing that that they've been murdered. We're talking about an area where the, there's not a lot of homicides that take place, especially the murder of children. So um, no one has any reason to think that again, they're teenagers. And in fact, that very night you can see Mike Patty and Abby's mom 
on the news, on the local 11 o'clock news. And I mean, yeah, they, they obviously look and sound concerned, but nobody's panicked, right? right. Nobody's panicking at this point because you still think you're going to find them. Maybe at the worst, you're thinking maybe somebody slipped, fell, broken ankle, and they're they're kind of stuck somewhere for whatever reason. But yeah, they um, the next morning when the searches reconvened, now we have uh, hundreds of volunteers out there. I believe that it was about 300 people. Wow! Ultimately, show up on that day, and they're out searching for the girls. And unfortunately, they find them around noon, a little afternoon, and um they know right away we're dealing with a with a homicide this was not an accident they knew immediately that that some that foul play uh was the result of of the two girls deaths and in a moment if if i can cite it from a book from the book in a moment that is in, in one of those moments that you go <gasps> in mm-hmm. that i know i did that when i when i read the book um was it abby or libby's older sister uh almost comes across the bodies, but it's the person who found the bodies that told the older sister, no, 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 don't come over here. Um, and actually took her away from the scene. Um, yes. So they, they had broken down into uh, a few different search parties, right? mm -hmm. Like, um, a handful of people, maybe 10 at the most are in these different search parties and they have their, their, they're given their little areas to search. And the search party close, one of the search parties closest to, because Kelsey was out there searching as well. She's in the search party, basically the next one over. And she starts hearing that, oh, they found a shoe. And they're shouting out the description of the shoe. And she hears this and she goes, that sounds exactly like my sister's shoe. And so her natural instinct, in fact, she says something so, I mean, charming in a, in a weird way to look at it. But I, I think of it as charming and, and cute. She brought um, she brought like a breakfast bar, or granola bar out there because she thought, well, as soon as I find my sister, she, you know, a bottle of water and a granola bar, she's going to be hungry and thirsty because she's been gone all night. Right. And it, I mean, what an act of kindness. So uh her natural instinct, like the rest of us, would be to run to your loved one. Mm-hmm. And she starts to starts to go, and then somebody in her search party who who knew her, knew the family very well, I think had some intuition of, okay, they've been found, but this is, might not be, you may not want to go over there because whatever it is, you cannot unsee that. And yeah. so um, at least she was spared the images of the of the murder scene where the girls were found what a nightmare nick i mean to, oh yeah to... absolute nightmare and and, and and i say this in the book time and time again and i say it on our podcast a lot uh because unfortunately one one of the biggest topics that we cover on the podcast is cold cases mm-hmm. and we we we're regularly tim once a month covering a a, a child murder cold case and so it's something that we have a good amount of experience in, in storytelling with. And it's by far, I mean, one of the most dark and difficult, heavy subjects to to discuss. But when these cases go unsolved, you have people that are hurt and broken for forever, for decades and decades. Yeah. And if if we stop talking about it, if everybody stops talking about it, 
this case goes away. <laughs> Those cases go away. And at some point, if a, if if the stories all stop, the pictures start fade, it's almost like it never happened. And that, I will not stand for that. I will never tolerate that at all. And so uh, we talk about these stories. But one thing I, I, I point out every time is a child murder is is not just a crime against that victim, against the family. It is a crime against the entire community. And when that happens, the cases that get solved are the ones where the case where the community rallies around itself and, and huddles together and they they become strong and united. And that happened in this Delphi case. Yes, it took five and a half years, almost six years to get charges. But we sit here with a man in in jail awaiting trial now. That's a much better situation than, than we were looking at six months or a year ago. And so if, if the community rallies together, these things tend to get uh, in a better, I, I'll never say that there's, there's um, closure for, for someone to, to get over a tragedy like this, especially parents and siblings, but it at least provides some answers. And I believe it's might be the first step in some form of healing for the family, for the parents, and for the community. Let me ask you this question, and, and it's a gruesome question to ask, so I, I hesitate in asking it. Um, in this situation with Abby and Libby, they were found relatively quickly after the murder. You have other cases that I know you deal with on True Crime Garage where people go years, decades without finding their loved ones, and maybe they do eventually. What do you think is more mentally and mentally, spiritually, physically torturous to to go without that loved one for years and decades, and then eventually find them, knowing that in your mind and in your heart you've resolved the fact that they're gone, but eventually get those remains, or the fact that you found them immediately and you had hope that they were just going to be missing overnight, yet there's the shock that you've found them and they're dead. Yeah, it's it would be very difficult for me to to have a, a great answer here, Tim, because I'm thankfully I've never had to experience anything close to this at all. Um, but typically, what I what I've seen and from what I can gather all, from all the cases we've covered over the years and talking to victims and victims' loved ones, their families, and and everyone else, it's it's the it's the loss and the not knowing that are the most devastating parts of of these crimes and both scenarios you set up there's the loss but in the one scenario of where where a victim isn't found for months or years or sometimes a decade or so or or ever uh there's that not knowing is is paramount to to where we have a situation where like with Libby and Abby where they're found within 24 hours of when they go missing. And the other thing too is and this is something we regularly talk about on True Crime Garage is time is the killer. Time is the killer of evidence. Mm -hmm. And when when you have a remains that are not found for a long period of time, you have a crime scene that that is not investigated or processed for a long period of time. Time is the killer of evidence, and that will hurt 
the case. That will hurt the investigation. That will lessen the probability of ever getting a conviction. And so those th- that too, um, it, these people need answers, right? You can't bring their loved one back, but at least we can hope to give them some kind of answers. And any time that they're denied those answers, um, regardless of how of of why um that that's a big that's that's something too that you know it's i can't i cannot imagine um what what any of these victims loved ones have gone through like i said i've talked to a bunch of victims loved ones over the years and um it's it's always something that i i look forward to meeting the people because i love people man sure oh yeah but i but i kind of limp into it uh because i'm like i i i'm i'm heartbroken you know i I try to be as as uh, empathetic as possible and mm-hmm. and and sympathetic as possible and I you know I've I've had people break down on my shoulder and cry and 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 it's hard for me not to do the same and and I met Mike Patty and Becky Patty and they they have a different last name because they're grandparents but they were raising Libby in a parental fashion and they were they were filling the void of of the parents we had a a, one parent that was living out of state and then their son derek who uh is the father and he wasn't absent from her life yeah he just you know when she was young he wasn't in a position to be uh, a father um and so becky and mike patty took over that role and i met them and they're the the nicest most wonderful people and but you can see the heart heartbreak on their face on their faces uh just even during casual conversation i've spoke with uh both of them briefly i've had the privilege of speaking to kelsey extensively over uh uh, some other podcasts that i did a show called who killed but um that that's the other heartbreaking part of it it's like this horrible the like the worst tragedy i can think of the the most horrible crime neighborhood crime i could imagine happened to these wonderful lovely just good-hearted people and and i said this in the book too they're the way that they handled this and and look we i don't know behind the scenes of course i'm sure their their damn hearts have been ripped out of their chest what do you want yeah but at least in front of the cameras or when I, when I saw them in person and, or watched them on stage at crime con and other events and, and interview after interview, they handled themselves with grace. They could have, you know, they could have went out there. They handled themselves with, with, and, and I think in some way, uh, hopefully that I think they taught the rest of us how to be stronger about this, case that didn't affect us the way that it that it affected them absolutely you know let's let's talk about the family for a moment because you you do put it eloquently in the book you talk about the fact that you know libby and abby had a a little bit of a, a different family situation and i think it was misconstrued by the community and in that the family situation was used against the family at the hardest time in their family history, at a time when these girls are deceased. And one of the things I find when when we cover these different cases is as the public is searching for answers, as the public becomes emotionally involved in a case, 
the first thing they want to do, because they've seen this trope on many a TV show that they watch, is they want to turn the case inward. They want to turn the case, first of all, in the family, and they want to find a place to blame within the family for the death of a young child, especially. Uh, If you could, Nick, explain to our audience why the public wanted to turn inward towards the family and look towards a suspect in the family first uh, for the deaths of, of these, these two kids. So I've covered a lot of cases for true crime garage. And one thing that I've, I've learned over the years is the older a case, the longer the case has gone unsolved, gone cold. And when I interview family members, people close to the, the case or the investigation, one thing I've found that, it, that it's almost 100% of the time, Tim, the longer a case goes un- unsolved, the more suspicious the family is of everyone, you know, and, and I've seen that time and time again, not every time, but it's, it's a pretty shared trait. And I don't know if that, I'm guessing that that has to carry over to the masses somehow, right? Where a case mm-hmm. gets, it's, it's not solved. There must be something wrong with it. Uh, what, what could be wrong with it? Well, and and this is just kind of a sad thing. Like it's it's something that I really I really got disgusted by in this case was uh, people coming up with th- their own assumptions and, or or believing that the families were weird for some, like oh your your family makeup is not cookie cutter. It doesn't look exactly like the makeup of my family. So you guys must be weird, and there must be some weird things going on within the the four walls of the homes that the, these kids lived in. Yeah. And it's, it's now like I, from what I've seen doing, doing hundreds of cases on true crime garage, heck the, the mom, dad, and, and two, two kids in the middle class neighborhood tend to have the weirder family <laughs> than the one that, that makes up a little bit different. I mean, I, I got friends and, and loved ones who are, um, you know, raising adopted kids or, or a lesbian couple who raise kids or, or grandparents raising children. And guess what? When, when those who can't or should not be raising kids, better people step up. That's, that's the way that things tend to work. And here we had better people step up and they were providing the best uh, childhood, the best experience, the best family that they could for somebody that they loved to with all their heart. And then people on the outside want to go, well, that's weird. Grandma and grandpa are right now. There was nothing weird to, about that to Libby. There was nothing weird. Abby didn't think her family was weird. She lived with her mom, you know, and then people, people want to make things up and go, Oh, Mike Patty looks like bridge guy. You know what? Go fly a kite because I, I'm here to tell you, like, we that's the thing that drove me nuts about this case, Tim, was everybody, all th- this business online with, oh, this guy looks like bridge guy. That guy looks like bridge guy. It's like, we didn't know what he looked like. If we knew what he looked like, it wouldn't have taken five and a half years to arrest somebody. That picture, that pixelated picture was not a good picture. It, it, the only thing it could provide us, Tim, was that we knew the suspect was a white male. We knew that the person that did it was there on those trails that day between 3 and 5 p.m. And actually, we could back that up a little earlier, about 2 p.m. to, to 4 or 5 p.m. And so all that picture to for me could do 
would be to eliminate people that did not look like that man. Mm-hmm. You you couldn't you couldn't put that picture next to somebody and say this, this guy looks exactly like Bridge Guy. No, you just couldn't do that because it was a terrible picture. But you could put that image next to a good amount of the population. Go well. She wasn't Bridge Guy, or uh, this Hispanic individual was not bridge guy this african-american male was not bridge guy uh all that image could do was tell us who was not bridge guy not who is right speaking of we have to take our break uh you know we talk a little bit about the the footage that the girls got of bridge guy it was important in the case and it was important in in trying to find out who bridge guy was but you just pointed out yourself nick that 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 footage was pixelated now did it help or hurt the case we'll talk about that when we come back from the break as you pointed out it was pixelated footage and there was a little bit of a problem in how that footage got out and how it got to the masses there was only 43 seconds we'll talk about the fact that there was more footage out there and why it took so long for us to find out about it or for anybody to find out about it we'll talk about that as well on the other side of the break When we come back, more with Nick Edwards, and we'll talk about the Delphi murders and exactly what that footage did with Bridge Guy. And did it help the case? Did it hurt the case? And did it help narrow down a suspect, or did it just widen the field? We're talking the Delphi murders, the quest to find the man on the bridge. We're talking with Nick Edwards, the co-writer of that book. And also Brian Whitney, the other uh, co-writer of the book, not here with us today, but uh, those are the two writers of the book, The Delphi Murders, The Quest to Find the Man on the Bridge. We'll have a link in the description of this program. Uh, By all means, go out and order it during the break. You're listening to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. Welcome back to the Best in True Crime Podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Our guest is Nick Edwards from True Crime Garage. He's also the co-writer of The Delphi Murders, The Quest to Find the Man on the Bridge, along with Brian Whitney. When we left you, we were talking about the footage of Bridge Guy and the fact that the girls had shot that footage, 43 seconds worth. And uh, the, the footage... In the footage, Bridge Guy says, guys down the hill. And we've got a description of what this guy looks like, Nick. Mm -hmm. Um, But does it help or does it hurt? And I want to ask you that question right off the bat. Did it help or did it hurt the investigation? Um, It absolutely helped, 100%. Like, if if you ask me that question 100 times, maybe one out of 100 I might stumble and say uh, it hurt, but... uh, I would say I, I firmly believe it. It absolutely helped the case. Now, what happens, though, is it complicates the investigation because you get everybody and their cousin and then that person's cousin, too, from the other side calling in tips about, oh, I know who Bridge Guy is or so-and-so uh, uh, is definitely Bridge Guy. Here's the weird guy that I want to tell cops about. Um, and then in this case, you got people even – across state lines that are emailing side-by-sides of people that they're finding on Facebook and on the internet going, oh, this guy, it has to be Bridge Guy. He looks like Bridge Guy. Well, like, unfortunately, for the case, uh, you know, if the image of the man walking across that bridge was was the image of, uh, of a white male with two heads, well, it would have been really easy to solve 
uh, the case, right? And and to sure. to go find the and make an arrest. But that's not the situation. The the image that was captured that day by Libby was that of of a pretty regular looking dude and very pixelated, like you said. Not a, it. Everybody's experienced this. We've taken pictures from a distance on our phone and and we in the moment we're like, oh, that's a good picture, right? Mm-hmm. And then you look <laughs> at it later. You're sitting at home going through your pictures from your vacation cold beer in your hand and you go wow i've got a lot of terrible pictures a lot of pictures <laughs> to edit or to to delete altogether and here's the deal this when i get asked this question a lot and what i like to do is i like to flip it and reverse it right like uh, missy elliott told us to sure do, right yep. you flip it and you reverse it so mm-hmm. flip, flip it and reverse it i say to you tim okay it took over five and a half years to make an arrest of Richard Allen and charge him with these two homicides. And that is with Libby German being so brave and smart in the moment to pull out her phone, capture his image of him walking on the bridge and then conceal the phone and let it roll. Let it roll while he says and instructs them and demands and directs them down the hill. I throw the question to you and to everyone else. If it took that long with all of that information to make that arrest, how long do you think it would have taken to make an arrest had she not captured his image or his voice on audio? I would bet, I would wager a Franklin right now that we are sitting here without an arrest. Oh, yeah. I'll give you my answer straight out. I'll say decades. Yes, if at all, right? Yeah, and yeah. and so if they don't have DNA, uh, which it does not look like they do, right? We are probably talking about a case that never gets solved. Yeah, a case that, that never that there's never an arrest. So, as as difficult as the image made the investigation, and as difficult as much more work that it made for the inve- investigators, ultimately. It was 100% necessary to this investigation to have that information. And then knowing what we know now, too, about Richard Allen and the way that he gets arrested, he, he, according to a police report and according to him and his attorneys, he spoke with law enforcement in 2017. Now, I don't want to go down this road too much. Please. It's a little tricky uh, because it it sounds like he may have spoke to a resource officer or natural resources officer. Mm Mm-hmm conservation officer something of that nature that doesn't sound to me like he marched into the sheriff's department and said let me talk to your homicide detective yeah i don't think that's what happened but he spoke with somebody that took a report back in 2017 when the case was fresh Mm -hmm. um i have to believe he never talks to anybody at all if that image wasn't out there yeah yeah no he he doesn't say anything he doesn't say anything exactly Exactly. Uh, and that's a CYA moment, too, uh, uh, mm-hmm. most definitely. Um, and some of the things that are said by his attorney, and again, we're going to talk about a, a couple of these things a little bit later in the program, but some of the things that are said initially by his attorney are, are a little jarring in that he, his attorney covers even more uh, at the time of his arrest and says, well, Come on now, we're dealing with an innocent man. This is a man who held on to all of his clothes from that day, and he never, he never really 
left the area and let's face it he's given over all of his guns and he had his weapons tested for ballistics and would an innocent man do all of this i mean we're and, and we're prepared to show that ballistics is an inexact science and in this that and the other i want you to respond to this nick do you feel like even the lawyers are spinning a little out of control here in trying to create a story uh, for mr miller well, I, I think that they're doing their job. I think that they're doing uh, what what they're paid to do and what I would want them to do if they were representing me. Uh, I, I think you question everything and you uh, spin it however you want to spin it. And but to me, I mean, it, you know, it doesn't take uh, you don't I don't have to be incredibly smart to to hear the lawyers say things like, well, he still owns the same car. He still owns the same gun. He never threw away his clothing. Um, you know, he never moved away. Uh, these things point to obvious signs of innocence. No, he could also just be incredibly dumb. Yeah, like, I mean, <laughs> that's the first thing I thought. <laughs> right. It's like, and, and maybe he just, or maybe he hung on to a thing or two because it became sentimental to him. It had some kind of uh emotional value or or some or fulfilled some uh reliving of this uh, of this horrible act to him so i mean we don't want to try to crawl inside that mind and figure out why he did not discard of those things now i would bet we we did um uh we we actually have a show coming out on the uh, 18th that uh i apologize we have a show coming out on the 11th where we we go through some of the more recent stuff with in regard of richard allen mm -hmm. and the the new information that came out late last month and so we, we know all of the items that were seized from his home and a large amount of bladed weapons were uh removed from the home some of them are even more like decorative collector item type you know ones that, that you wouldn't be out there using in the woods but we know these items were collected from them, and we know that the that they were killed with a sharp object or sharp sharp instrument, and so the that is newer information. And what I'm thinking here, Tim, is that if he did get rid of anything that would point more toward guilt, I bet you, I'm hoping that that I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but knowing that he was next to water. Uh, when the girls were killed, it would have been very easy for him to discard of a of a blade or a knife. Yeah, uh, close to the scene or on his way fleeing the scene. So he that item may have been discarded, and that points towards guilt. Now I, I hope that I'm wrong because if I'm wrong, the better part, Tim, would be that they confiscated every blade this guy has ever owned, and he was dumb enough to hang on to all of them, and that he thought he cleaned them. But, oh, you remove that handle, you remove that hilt, and they they very regularly find blood uh, or DNA. And if they find the, the girl's blood or DNA on something in his home, that man's goose is cooked. Yes, indeed. And that's going to lead to something we'll talk about here at the end. I want to go through uh, a few of the suspects that you talk about, because there are some other suspects uh, in the book that are legitimate. And there's one in particular, there's a father-son team that you tie to the case that are very, very interesting. Could you tell us about them? And and if anybody, other than 
Richard Miller is is the the guy who's sitting in jail for this is isn't the killer? Then this team has to be. Uh, do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, the the Kleins. So, uh, father and son Tony and Kagan Klein. They the son Kagan was was neck deep in catfishing young girls and and tricking them. He's he's creating these different social media profiles and online profiles, and he's making uh developing relationships online and social media relationships with underage girls and getting them to send him nude photos or even videos of them masturbating and things of that nature and and he's he's also buddying up with these other creeps online which they do that's what they do yeah and they they trade this stuff um but you know, at one point he's pretending to be a, a young girl himself, uh, and that that's a ruse that he used. And then later he's he's using this profile that he created, which was Anthony Shots, a profile that's known as Anthony Shots. And in this profile, you got this very Justin Bieber looking type uh, model guy uh, that that you know tan, got the six pack abs, good looking kid. Uh, looks like he's maybe 19 or 20 so you know not 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 so scary to a to a 14 year old or 15 year old girl but um and 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 supposed to be a character that has a bunch of money you know real cool guy sports cars and all of that that's who you're communicating with little girls at least that's what they thought and it turns out kagan klein could not look further uh, could not it could not look the any more the total opposite of the the character that I just described, and those poor girls if they would have known who they were really talking to. But but anyway, that this is it turns out that that these two probably didn't have anything to do with it. it's it's still very difficult. The the nobody's charged Tony Klein with anything, and he may not have participated in any of that business that his son was involved in now we do know in some of those interactions the anthony shots uh character as well as emily ann i think was the the girl character that he was using Mm -hmm. um that both of those profiles make reference to my dad or my father on several occasions but we can't sit here and say at all that he that anthony klein tony klein his father participated in any of that um so I, that that's a little. I'm not trying to dance around things here, sure, but it's, sure. you know, for some of this we have to deal in facts, and the facts are that nobody has charged Tony Klein with anything. He could be just a perfectly innocent regular dude. Uh, Kagan Klein, not. No, we know at the very least he was tricking little girls into doing, sending him disgusting stuff, and th- this is a predator that we need to be reminded of that exists. And we not only need to be reminded, we need to remind our children. Everybody out there in the community needs to remind their children that these predators do exist and they're incredibly dangerous. And I'll get into that a little bit more here in just a second. But this guy didn't use, didn't, was not approaching girls on the playground, was not pulling up to him in his car and rolling down the window and asking for directions. No, he victimized your children by getting, walking through your closed and locked doors of your homes via your children's phones and tablets. 
and that's how he struck up conversation with them. And then if if that's not got you fully on guard, ready to to uh, start putting up fences. The other thing I reviewed a lot. Of, so all all of the conversations that he had with these different girls that the state is charging him with, I was able to review these conversations. And here's the most terrifying part about it. Regularly in these conversations, he's not just after he's totally duped the kid mm-hmm. and they're kind of doing whatever he's requesting. Now he's going, Oh, how about your friends? Do you have any friends that I could talk? To? Oh, oh, do you have a younger sister that uh, you could uh, take some pictures of her and send them to me? Oh, and then God. of course he's sending them to other creeps. Now with, with somebody like Keg and Klein, the reason why, I mean, of course, police honed in on him, and and it's hard for us to say, Tim, exactly how much they really thought he could be the killer. We know that they interrogated him on more than one occasion with the questions that they thought he might be mm-hmm. uh, the killer or know the killer. Yeah. And uh, but the thing here that needs to be pointed out that that really struck me as incredibly odd with Kagan and Klein. And still does not sit very well with me at all to this day is that, look, he's not the first guy to catfish young girls or or minors over a phone or computer. And he won't be the last. But what he was doing that was very different from what these normal, what, what other situations, these other predators typically do, they are looking for people. They don't care the location of the minor. Mm-hmm. Keg and Klein seem to only be talking to miners that lived relatively close to where he lived. Ugh. And I, f- I found that to be very strange. Like why, why would you do that? Well, the only reason to do that, that w- that would make sense to me is that you want to have some actual physical access to these people. Not, and not just access know, Nick, but to eventually meet up and maybe do something I mean. dastardly. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. want to, you want to have, you want to have the ability. So he's only communicating with girls within a, a, a small proximity of himself and where a lot of times these online predators you'll get you'll get a guy in maine that would prefer to talk to somebody in washington state or california or texas because uh the chances of it coming finding him and being the perpetrator of this online activity he he may think lessens that and, and he has no real desire to ever meet up with them yeah. or kidnap them or any of that business yep. he just wants the videos and the images yeah so yeah. different kind and even a little more scarier version of a predator that we're already we're well aware of. Yeah. And I I wonder, you know, now that that we've moved on from him, I with him doing so much of that activity at a young age, I just wonder you know, he's not he's not looking at they ain't going to lock Keg and Klein up forever. No. Uh, he'll get, he'll get a relatively short prison sentence. Yeah. Uh, if he, if he gets one at all. And the problem with that is when they charged him, they initially charged him with like 30 some counts of this kind of behavior. And it's already been dropped down now that they've moved on from him as a, and I believe that's what they did. I think they moved on from him as a suspect. And once they did, they dropped a bunch of those charges. Cause I think they thought, well, maybe, we can figure something we'll get if all of this uh consequences hanging above his head then maybe he'll he'll tell us some information we need to know in this delphi business and they dropped a lot of those charges well why because 
these cases are hard to prosecute because a lot of they're they're pulling a lot of this activity from his devices. Yeah. They don't necessarily know who all the victims are uh, that he was out there talking to. So uh, we don't have a victim to uh, to to sit there. You get you have the right to face your accuser, mm-hmm. and so. That's why some of those charges were brought, were dropped against him. Some people had speculated that he was cooperating with police as far as the Delphi double murders went, and that's why the charges were dropped. No, that's not that's not the case. Um, uh, and, and so, yeah, that's but yeah, different kind of predator, but still still scary stuff. Well, you bring something up interesting in the book, and that's this: uh, that uh, the son is is kind of protecting the father throughout the entire prosecution that he really is kind of keeping him shaded or guarded. But I'll, I'll bring this up to you, my friend. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He had to learn it from somewhere. And I'm convinced he learned it from dad. And that, that very well could be the case. And we know that we know in other cases that is the case. And I, I and we know he's not 100 percent, you know, guilt or 100 percent innocent in this whole thing. My thing is, is I really do think when the son goes away, the father's going to start to play. And I think, I think police will follow up on him and keep tabs on him. He's not going to use the same moniker online. He's probably going to use something else, but they'll follow the IP addresses because I don't think he's that brilliant. And I think you're going to see the father get put away as well. Yeah. And we, we know that these, the, this, these homicides, Libby and Abby were killed on a Monday. And the thing that made it even more difficult when you looked at somebody like Kagan and his father, well, Kagan doesn't work. And Tony is off his regular day off. One of them is a Monday. So uh, these were people that were hard to account for on, on the day in question. That's chilling. Just that, that coincidence alone was chilling. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Um, Before we leave people, Today, I want to I want to circle back to Richard Miller. Now, you're going to cover a lot of the new stuff, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that new stuff for people to go over to True Crime Garage and and check out that show on the new stuff. But there's an article that came out on uh, June 28th that was a little disturbing, and and I want to get your thoughts on it just briefly, and then people can go to True Crime Garage and get the in depth thoughts on it. And that's this. Uh, Richard Allen was in his jail cell, and it came out that he talked to his wife and basically admitted to her several times, and this is the quote, he admitted several times that he killed Abby and Libby. His wife reportedly abruptly ended the call at that point. And this is according to a Carroll County Sheriff's Department detective who wrote in a document that that happened on April 3rd. Um, yeah, so... Go ahead. We will yep. we will definitely see more of this if this thing goes to trial and, and you might some people might be scratching their heads there but uh, I, if for those that are really dialed in and paying attention I I would believe that there would be some people out there that could see a way that this thing doesn't go to trial maybe if 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 Richard Allen did confess to his wife and um and that's what's being reported and and I don't question that but we'll we'll get into what I think's more interesting about that sure um it's not hard to believe that we're we might be a short leap away from him confessing to everybody mm-hmm. and and therefore there would not be a trial now the thing here is though 
the way that that's reported is that it was uh, transcribed phone calls. So that they are they're recording his his phone calls that from his cell. He has a, a tablet that he's allowed to use to to communicate with people, and that they that was taken from a transcription of a phone call that he had with his wife. What that report does not tell us, as well as the transcription, I'm, I'm assuming one. That transcript was not released to the public. It was just the report of the detective saying, well, he, he confessed to his wife and then she hung up the phone. That's the way it sounds, right? right? But we've seen plenty of cases where somebody has been interrogated by police and they confess to a crime that we later learned through DNA they did not commit. Um, and so the reason why I'm not ready to throw a parade based off of that statement is we don't know the context in which he tells, he says to his wife that, or exactly how he says that to his wife was, was he being sarcastic? Did he say it out of, out of frustration that, Oh, everybody's saying I killed him. Well, guess what? I killed him. And he doesn't, and he, and he didn't. Um, and look, I'm, I'm not rushing to the front line to be in the defense of Richard Allen. I'm just saying until we know exactly what it is, uh, I, I don't want to sit and spin my tires too much on it because it could have, if you, if anybody that's familiar with the yogurt shop case down out of Austin, Texas, uh, you want to hear a confession that sounds, that, that sounds very hard to go back on. Uh, that one is very difficult. Um, and, and I, I don't know exactly the rating of your show. So I, I hesitate to, to, to fire, say you fire off. You can say whatever you want. Well, in in the, Austin yogurt shop case, they arrested, uh, uh, at the time there were only three of the four individuals left that police thought had killed four girls, uh, raped and murdered four girls in the back of a yogurt shop and burnt the, the place down or attempted to burn it down. And two of the guys that were, uh, interrogated confessed. And one of the guys confessed so much that he's he it's on videotape. Uh, he's yelling at the officers saying, yeah, I something to the effect of, yeah, I killed her. And, yeah, I I pulled out my penis and I raped her. And he, we're talking about children wow. uh, victims. And, that, and he's yelling that at the cops with 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 a voice and a face that makes you believe he's ready to punch that cop right in the face. Jeez. And then what do we what do we find out years later? DNA uh, confirms that he did not do those things that he screamed at. So when when I that's why I go. Let's see what this actually means, right? Let's right. see what what this statement actually means before we're ready to string some guy up in the middle middle of uh, uh, um, town square. So I have to ask you then, Nick, because. Okay, so at the scene, for our listeners here that aren't familiar with the case, there was a there was a, a, a shell from an unspent shell from a 40, 40 millimeter Sig Sauer, okay, mm -hmm. next to the bodies. At which anything could have happened in that case. It could have been that he had he had to scare the girls. He might have cocked the the gun. An unspent shell could have come from the gun. Um, in order to scare them, to make them think that maybe, you know, he was loading up another another round in the chamber. Um, it could have been that one fell out by accident. Maybe he forgot he had one in the chamber, so he, he went to load up one in the chamber. Um, 
But as you just mentioned, that the girls were killed with a sharp weapon. So maybe the gun was just used as a threat. But ballistics is tying that unspent shell to this Sig Sauer that was brought from his, his domain, his domicile. Mm-hmm. There's other evidence that they're tying as well, as, as you've mentioned. And we'll, again, we'll, we'll save that for a true crime garage. There's, there's some interesting things here besides just his supposed confession to his wife that tie him to this case. But you've, again, I want to bring people again to the book and, and tell them to read this book because there's some other players involved here that, that are peripheral players that probably aren't as, as good as Mr. Allen's but as being a suspect here. But I want to ask you this sincerely. Do you think Richard Miller is the best suspect as far as being the killers of Libby and Abby? Yes, I, I believe that Richard Allen is by far the best suspect. I'm sorry, Richard Allen. Yeah, I by by far uh, out of all the people mentioned in the book, um, and all the people that have been mentioned over the course of six years, I think that Richard Allen is by far the best suspect. Now he he has something that he has something that separates him from everyone else, and just the pure fact that he was there in that location at that time on that day that 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 is the thing and that's tim that's why these side-by-sides and people submitting stuff to the police kind of aggravated me because they don't realize that what they are doing uh the speed bumps that they are putting in in front of these investigators when you go oh look at this guy he looks and dresses exactly like bridge guy and oh I even heard him talk on Facebook too, or on YouTube and uh, listen to him. He sounds just like bridge guy better mail this in. Well, they mail it in. Good for you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to stomp on any concerned citizen or, you know, you see something, say something. I'm not going to, I'm not going to bash anybody for doing that, but pump the brakes a little bit because the, the key thing here is the killer had to be there at that time on that day. So if your if your guy that you're emailing police about or the FBI about lives in Hawaii, well, we immediately have a problem. Or if he lives, uh, if he if he doesn't live in Delphi, Indiana, or Carroll County, Indiana, we immediately have a problem. Can you put that individual on the trails that day? And I would guess, you know, we heard something like. 40,000, 60,000 tips that had come in. And that, that was fairly early on in the case. So I don't wow. know how many tips that they ultimately ended up receiving, but um, how many of those were people that, that could not physically have been there that day? I'm guessing a whole bunch of them. The other thing that, that's reported in this article is that, um, and I have to ask you this question as well, because this this makes me wonder a couple of different things, and I'll explain after I get done reading it. Mm-hmm. They say that he's lost an incredible amount of weight there at the Westville Correctional Facility. He's reportedly in a segregation unit for his own protection. He claims that the he claims that the the corrections officers there are calling him a kid killer, trying to determine whether he needs to be put on involuntary medication. At one point, uh, they say that he took. Oh, he allegedly had wet paper sent by his attorneys and ate it. 
that that's the reason they're trying to figure out whether they need to move facilities with Mr. Allen and whether he needs to be put on involuntary medication. Do you believe he is mentally breaking down and is he breaking down from guilt or is he mentally breaking down from pressure? Is he breaking down from the pressure of finally all of this from outside pressure, outside pressure from guards, outside pressure from inmates, outside pressure from people just saying, hey, we know you're a kid killer because that happens in inside uh, prisons. Yeah, and so it's it's his defense team that, that has put forth the request to have him moved. And it's um, not necessarily the courts or the facility who's wondering, should we move this guy? It's the defense team saying, look, um, it's very difficult for his family to visit Richard Allen. It's very difficult for us, his defense team, to visit him in person because of not just the he's in a segregation unit, which makes it more difficult to get to him even once you're at the facility. Mm-hmm. But the facility is not the closest one to where all of these other people live, the you know, the defense team and uh, Richard Allen's family. So what they're saying is, you know, we've got to travel a, a a f- you know a further distance than, than necessary than we would uh if he were housed elsewhere and so and i guess you know every facility is different but from the way i understand it that the segregation portion of this facility makes it difficult for the defense team to believe that they have 100 percent um, closed door meetings with their client that they're not being watched or listened to during these these meetings, which we do not want that to happen. Look, I right, not does it? Does, is there a whole bunch of people out there with, uh, with signs that that feel bad and and sympathize for Richard Allen? No, uh, but but at the same time, we don't want to muck up any of this trial that should happen, that that's scheduled to happen. We want a clean trial, yeah, and we don't want any reason to let. A, a bad guy if he did this he's pure evil yes we do not want him to to get off on some kind of technicality so um let's play by the rules and the, as far as um him being called a kid killer and threatened by guards and other inmates and things of that nature that actually came from another person that is uh being held there at that facility that he wrote a letter saying this is what's happening and he, that's not the first time he's wrote a letter like that uh, in regard to uh, somebody being housed at that facility. So could this other guy be making all this stuff up? Yes. Could it all be absolutely true? Yes. Could the truth be somewhere in between? Yes. Um, it's difficult to to really say. Um, I'm not a, I, I would not applaud guards for harassing an inmate. Um, and I'm not. I'm not patting the inmates on the back that are, that may be harassing an inmate either. Um, But do I believe that it's terribly uncommon for these things to happen when somebody's charged with, with a double homicide of children that was probably sexually motivated? Um, No, that's, it's probably fairly common. And if, if, if that is the case, and if that is in fact happening, Richard Allen's probably a very par- he's probably become very paranoid uh, in the environment that he currently is in. And I would expect that it'd be very difficult to sleep with both eyes closed in, in that type of environment. And of course that's going to lead to 
weight loss that's going to lead to uh, his his uh, appearance changing over the course of, of several months. The other thing, too, is when you ask the facility, the warden is saying he is eating regularly. Now, that fluctuates depending on what's going on in his little world. But sure. um, the, he's afforded all of the same uh, privileges, I guess you would say, or mm-hmm. amenities as all of the other people being stored in that facility, housed in there. I keep saying stored like they're like it's an inventory <laughs> at the back, in right. the back stock room, right. uh, being housed in this facility. But the one thing that's interesting, though, is Richard Allen has a, a privilege and amenity that the other people being housed there do not. And that is a tablet. He has the use of a tablet that is just oh, his wow. to use okay. so that he can communicate and he can even listen to music on it. Um, and at some point he broke this tablet. So, um, hmm. yeah, I, I don't it, it's it's difficult to say. But here's the thing. If they really believe that he's being mistreated, the other right that Richard Allen has is the right to a speedy trial. And True. ain't nobody on that defense team saying, let's hurry up and take this thing to court. No, right. they ain't saying that either. Right. Uh, they want to try to build uh, build a case or crack the state's case, uh, and they're going to take their good old sweet time doing it. We we will not see a trial uh, if, there ever hap- if, if one ever happens until 2024. And I can't recall the exact date that they pushed it to at this point, you know, off of memory, but... Um, I would I would wager Franklin that it gets pushed back one, one or two more times. I'm trying to see if it's in this article. I had showed you the picture. I don't know if you saw it when I held it up. The the picture of what Richard Allen looks like now. Did you see that when I held yeah. it up to you? Yeah. So like the the warden states that um, you can see there's like a stain or some kind of uh, water or something on his shirt. It was. Uh, yeah. It's it's more. It's just more the the general weight loss of what he looks like it to me it's you know to me it's they're gonna feed you so it's not a matter of whether it's a matter of whether you choose to eat or not right right yeah exactly and you know but but the warden does point out you know he he has other shirts in his cell that he's choosing not to wear so yeah when you see a guy who looks disheveled looks weight loss and appears to be wearing dirty clothes well he had the option of wearing other clothes. Now, is he losing his mind? He very well could be. Um, is it a short drive to crazy town for somebody who kills two two girls out on the trails in broad daylight? Probably. Um, who knows how, if, if he is guilty, who, who knows who how sick and disturbed he was before he killed these two girls? Um, a lot of times these types will fantasize about this kind of stuff for years even and and hide this from from those closest to them very true i'm not seeing an actual date i want to say tim that they they were saying maybe january of 2024 but what will happen is you're they're going to have a competency hearing at some point yeah um and and that's and people get confused about that they're like oh uh, is is he going to use the insanity defense and no they're just going to decide if he's competent to to stand trial um and not not looking at was he insane at the time that he committed the crimes because he didn't walk into the police you know he didn't he didn't kill the girls and then walk into the sheriff's department and say oh i did it God told me to kill these kids and I would do it again, but, uh, lock me up before I do it. You know, he, he didn't 
he he eluded police for almost six years, and right. so right. Um, just the 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 very generic definition of uh, insane at the time of a crime or insanity defense is that you do not know or understand or comprehend right from wrong, um, or that you do and you did the wrong thing based off of some some mystical fantasy. Uh, but and that none of that is the case here. So it will not. I hope people don't uh, misconstrue a competency hearing for an insanity defense. Well, all this new stuff that's being reported to me just seems like it's being built up for that competency hearing. I mean, you know, wedding paper and eating it and the loss of weight and the pressure from inside the jail cell to me all seems like the beginning of a competency defense doesn't seem like that to you. Um, what it seems like to me is I, I don't do not want to give too much credit because I don't think that Richard Allen and, and I have I'm basing this off of very little information. Mm-hmm. I don't think that he's a brilliant individual. I don't think that he's smarter than the next guy. Okay. What I suspect here is that he's put himself in a situation that he is guilty. There's no way out for him. The curtain is now being peeled back and those that know him best and people that he may even love. If he, if he does know what love is, if he's, if he can love the way the rest of us can, that they, that he's fully exposed that, that they now know who he is and how small all of a person and how big of a monster he is. And that, uh, He's soulless, he's gutless, and he's just a horrible individual. And um, maybe he's making it easier on himself by portraying something that maybe his family and friends and people that he's known the longest could accept this a little differently if they think he's completely broke down and lost all of it. And, you know, uh, yeah, I that's what I, that's what I think he's, I think he may be either attempting to orchestrate a way to save face a little bit with some of these people or or some of or some of these acts are done out of anger and we are misconstruing why he's doing what he's doing you know um and and, and again that's something that we we went quite a bit more in depth to yeah, on yeah. on true crime garage Right. And, and I'll encourage people to go over and listen to that. In fact, we'll put a link in the description of this show so you can go check that out and check out True Crime Garage and check out the full show of, uh, of uh, Nick and the captain getting into it and getting into the, uh, the new developments with, uh, mm-hmm. with uh, Mr. Allen. Uh, Nick, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And, and again, folks, there's a link in the description of this program to check out the book. I, I fully encourage you to check out the book because we've barely scratched the surface today as to, uh, what exactly the, the book, the Delphi murders is all about the Delphi murders, the quest to find the man on the bridge. It's uh, by the host of True Crime Garage, who's been with us today, Nick Edwards and Brian Whitney. The book gets more into the ancillary players, uh, the the other suspects that are involved or may be involved and also gets into the histories of the families 
of, of Abby and Libby. It also gets into the actual investigation itself and gives you a more well-rounded look at everything having to do with the Delphi murders. So, Nick, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank oh, you so much for having me, Tom. Go ahead. You had something else you wanted to add. I want you to go ahead. And well, I, I wanted to point out that one thing that I try to do with this book that I think is different from a lot of true crime books, actually most of them out there, is that, yes, this is the case where we have somebody who's been arrested and awaiting trial. But, portion, you know, this book was written in, in a large portion of it was written in real time. So it, it will take you from the start to where we are now, or at least where we were when the book was published and released in April of this year. And so it, it's kind of walking hand in hand with me throughout the, the start of the case all the way through the arrest of Richard Allen. And and I think that's very different because many times we're, we're talking about true crime books that are written after the arrest or after a trial has concluded or before anybody's apprehended at all. And, and here with this book, you get a different storytelling where it's both. It, it's both because I'm delivering to you what I was experiencing or what I was speculating on at the time as the information was coming out. And so I wanted to do to tell the story in a very unique and different way. And I was very happy. I think we I think we achieved that. So it's it's available in several different forms. Kindle, uh, audio book, which the, the audio version, we were very I was very lucky. Kevin Pierce is, is a legend when it mm -hmm. comes to narrating books in audio form. And so uh, it was a huge I mean, that just made me feel like a, a million bucks when when they told me Kevin Pierce was going to do the book and to hear him read it, his performance is amazing. So if if you're you're tuning in to Tim's fantastic show or True Crime Garage. That's because you're an audio person. Pick up the audio book the Audi from Audible, uh, but it's also available in hardback and paperback. All versions available on Amazon. You can just search the Delphi murders or you could search Nick Edwards and it will come right up. And I wouldn't be doing you a service if uh, we didn't talk about the Por Porchlight Project real quick. Tell people uh, real quick about it and, and how they can and help out. Porchlightonline.org if you want to learn more about Porchlight and what we do, the Porchlight Project. And you can, there's easy and quick links uh, there if you want to donate as well. But we're a Ohio nonprofit that assists families in law enforcement with cold case investigations. And, and there are many different um, ways that we can assist families and law enforcement, but one of the ways that we've been the most successful is with providing funding for DNA testing. And we actually uh, worked with the Cuyahoga County uh, and we were able to solve a, a homicide case that was over 30 years cold. Oh, wow. The, uh, the, the murderer, actually, his name was not even in the case file, and it was a very extensive case file. The, the case it wasn't it didn't go unsolved due to a lack of effort by investigators police and detectives it went unsolved because of something we touched on earlier it was a stranger on stranger crime there was nothing connecting the victim to the perpetrator other than his dna that we were able to get tested and uh pay for that testing and that led to to an arrest and so we were happy to to close out a, a over 30 year old cold case we've also identified the 
uh, oldest unidentified remains in in Ohio. Um, that was a case from a couple years back, and now we've we've had some good success recently with identifying unidentified Jane and John Doe's um, and some of them murder victims. So um, what what happens is, like we keep going back to, most of the time the person that killed the person is in their social circle. Well, when you have a murder victim and you don't know who they are, you have no clue who their social circle is. So in, in the case of uh, Erie County Doe, uh, Jane Doe, I'm sorry, we were able to identify her, and guess what? Police and detectives now have people to talk to because we know who she is and where she lived and all of that All of that very necessary information. So uh, that is an organization that is near and dear to my heart, and we do boots-on-the-ground work and uh, will continue to do so. We, we did a case, a uh, very heartbreaking case, Nancy Eagleson. We we uh, raised money to have her exhumed. That case is from 1960. Wow. So a, uh, yeah, very old cold case and, and the exhumation, what that provided for law enforcement was we recovered a bullet from the casket. So now they have a, a bullet that they can test ballistically against a firearm. Should they find the, the, uh, you know, the right, firearm or they could eliminate firearms uh she was abducted and killed with a gun so uh we're doing good work and and i hope people will check out porchlightonline.org we'll have a link for that as well in the description of this program so you can go donate for porchlight project as well nick thank you so much for being with us today my friend it, again love the book delphi murders want everybody to go out and get the book uh, donate to Porchlight Project as well, and check out True Crime Garage uh, for the latest on the uh, Delphi murders. Hey, thanks, Tim, for having me, and thanks to everybody out there listening for putting up with me for the last hour, and I hope that you'll have me back sometime. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for being on. Folks, we're going to lighten things up a little bit. We're bringing in Mally Fox. It's time now for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. It's, it's Crayon News Storytime. <laughs> What happened with this dude, Christbearer? I heard he uh, cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony. Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? I need help. And what's the problem? I'm too high. You're too high? Yeah. It's that time you're all looking forward to, the time once again for us to Stop being so serious and start getting into a little lighthearted humor. It's time once again for Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. And it's time once again for us to bring in a co-hostess. We bring in the co-hostess with the mostest. It's Mally Fox. Hi, Mally. Hello, hello. Hello. We should uh, reiterate for everyone that um, although Bruiser is slowly working his way into Bruiser 2.0, uh, it's a little, it's going a little slower than, than he expected, but he'll be back soon. So, oh, poor guy. Yeah. There's a little bit of pain involved with, uh, with his type of, uh, hip replacement. So he's, uh, trying to find a way to get comfortable because it's not exactly comfortable to sit for the amount of time that we do these, uh, recordings. I don't think people realize that. So, uh, but he's working on it and hopefully he'll be back soon. So, oh. Just keep your your thoughts, your prayers, and, and your good energy going for it for Bruiser, and 
he'll be back sooner than you know. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Mally, we start off today's program right here in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Get out. Well, I can't because I have to read this. But <laughs> other than that, I mean, you know, I mean, I could turn the stories over to you and just leave. Right. Or, or, you know. <laughs> Me with my good, my one good eye. <laughs> <laughs> there you go with your one good eye. Um, you know, we're used to hearing that Florida man does weird things. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it so happens that Minneapolis St. Paulites have to go to Florida to witness those weird things. But as it is, we happened to send one of our own down to Florida and they came back and it rubbed off on them and they brought it back here to Minneapolis St. Paul. Uh, this just happened today as we're recording. We're recording on a Monday for Tuesday and fresh, fresh off the press here, Mally. A man flees an arrest at Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport by opening a plane door and running onto the airfield. Oh, my gosh. And, of course, he's flying in from Orlando, Florida. Of course. <laughs> he, he learned something new by going to Florida, evidently. Authorities say a flight passenger with an outstanding warrant tried to evade arrest at Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport Sunday night by opening a plane's emergency exit door and running onto the airfield because he was so happy to be home, evidently. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The attempted escape occurred at 11.15 p.m. on a parked Sun Country Airlines flight from Orlando, according to an airport spokesperson. Police were awaiting at or were waiting, rather, at the gate to arrest a 44-year-old New Brighton man. Well, that explains a lot right there. Stop. You're going to get hate mail. If you're from the Twin Cities, you know why somebody from (laughs) New Brighton just ran off the plane. Uh, While other passengers were leaving the plane, he opened an emergency exit door over a wing and ran. It turns out, by the way, that he was sitting in the emergency exit row. Oh, okay. So he just got up and boom, right out the door. It's true. Airport employees found the man inside an airline service food truck, Mal, at around 11.40 p.m. That's where he escaped to. How did he know that they were waiting for him? I think he just got paranoid. Oh. Yeah. And he notified, er, and they notified authorities, by the way, when they found him in the airline service food truck. He was arrested and is being held at Hennepin County Jail. Police said the man was wanted for violating a restraining order and also had an active felony drug warrant in Wright County. Oh. But I think they probably didn't find that out until he did the stupid act of running off the plane. Oh, see, now I misunderstood. I thought the authorities were waiting for him before he escaped. And that's why he escaped, because he knew they were there for him. I, I don't think so. I think it was... It, I think he just escaped for the hell of it, and then the yeah. authorities came. Yeah. Oh. Uh, he's. It says here he's wanted for violating a no-contact order and was taken into custody then. I, but he's got these other charges. Pardon me. Um. It's, uh, there's there's another article from Fox 9 that quotes Sun Country where they say, we take these incidents ser- very seriously and the crew called airport police who responded very quickly. This is after he, he, he bugged out the door, the emergency exit. There has to be something in that water in Florida. I'm I telling swear. you. 
I don't know if maybe he saw security get on the plane as everybody was deplaning and it oh, freaked maybe. him out. Okay. Or maybe they got a passenger list and somebody was notified or, or what exactly the story was there. But, but something freaked him out and he got a little paranoid and went out the exit, the mm. emergency exit. Just bizarre. I mean, yeah. if it's me, I take my chances and try and walk by because you're, right. not, you're not getting off that plane, Mel. You're just not, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, if they know it's you, if, if, if you're, if they've got, you know, if they've run the passenger list and they see you have a warrant, you're not getting off that plane. Right. I mean, you know, if you do get off the plane and you get, you know, uh, you know, if you go through the hall or that little temporary hall mm-hmm. and you get onto the actual or into the actual airport, there's going to be somebody waiting for you at the desk. Right. And the minute you get out of the hallway they're going to they're going to pull you aside you know or they'll get you a baggage claim or they'll get right. you you know they'll get you wherever they're going to get you but they're going to get you before you try to leave the airport so i, I don't know what the guys thinking you know i don't mm-hmm. know but i would think the chances that they're going <laughs> to it just doesn't make any sense. None of this makes any sense to me. I don't know why. I wonder he, what kind of food truck he was hiding in. It, it was the uh, Sky Chef's food truck. Oh. Yeah. You know, the LSG Sky Chef's, the ones right. who fill up the uh, plane with food. Gotcha. He, he just needed a place to hide. He bugged out and he started running on the tarmac and he said, oh, I'm going to hide in there because it was probably empty from them f- filling up a, a plane full of food. <laughs> <laughs> it's just stupid. I have the vision of, you know, when you watch those movies and they escape from like prison in like the laundromat truck mm-hmm. to get out the gate. Yes. That's what yeah. I was. That's what I envision with him on the food truck. Yeah. He's waiting to get out of the gates and then escape. <laughs> Even if they close up the food truck and drive back into the airport, where's he going to go then? They're going to open up the he, truck to fill it with more food. He just didn't think this one through <laughs> all the way. <laughs> I know. It's just stupid it's stupid uh we have a we have a a spate of stories here mel i i I think i came up with the right term there of really nice crimes by nice people or or supposedly (laughs) nice people okay turns out they're not but they're they're nice crimes from nice countries uh by not so nice people okay you ready for this yeah turns out that a canadian farmer's thumbs up emoji leads to a $62,000 fine for undelivered flax. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, you could be nice by messenger or nice by, by your message system on your phone. Uh, just don't use your thumbs up emoji because it could be taken the wrong way. Like go ahead and deliver that flax and you don't mean it. Here's the story out of Ottawa. This took place at the beginning of July here. A Canadian farmer has been ordered to pay more than 62, I'm sorry, 82,000 Canadian dollars or 61,784 American dollars in damages over an emoji confusion that a Saskatchewan judge resolved by ruling that a thumbs up image is enough to accept contractual terms. Does that seem right? Listen. All I know is the family bakery that I used to help out at, Mm -hmm. someone used to open up the direct messages. Yep. And they would accidentally do thumbs up. 
sometimes thumbs down, <laughs> which we don't understand why, or the mean face. Okay. And the people assumed that they were agreeing to their order or that they were mad at them or oh, no. that they're, and this person had no idea. She always claimed that she didn't know she was doing it. No. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah, horrible. So, we had a, we, uh, so you had to that clarify. Was fun. You had to clarify yeah. what, what they meant. That, that's yeah. terrible. Uh, Chris Ochter, the owner of a farming company in Swift Current, Saskatchewan, had sent a thumbs-up emoji in response to a photograph of a flax-buying contract sent to him by a grains buyer in 2021. Months later, when the time of delivery arrived, the buyer, which had been doing business with Octor for several years, did not receive the flax. This sounds horrible. That started a dispute that led to a far-flung search for the equivalent of the Rosetta Stone in cases from Israel, New York State, and some tribunals in Canada to unearth what a thumbs-up emoji means. <laughs> I just don't think that should be legal binding, it a thumbs-up. It shouldn't be, because it has a wide, a wide range of what it means. Right. According just to the, like the eggplant. That's <laughs> Some well. people like vegetables. <laughs> well, there has to be something attached to the eggplant in order for it to mean what <laughs> I think it what you think it means. Uh, now, according to the June Court ruling that surfaced in local media this past week, the buyer, Southwest Terminal, argued that the emoji implied acceptance of contractual terms, while Octor said he used the thumbs up image only to indicate that he had received the contract but not to indicate his agreement. I could see where the confusion lies mm -hmm. between the two, right? I'm sure you can too. Uh, in a summary judgment littered with 24 instances of the emoji, Judge T.J. Keene said, I am satisfied on the balance of probabilities that Chris okayed or approved the contract just like he had done before, except this time he used a thumbs up emoji. In my opinion, the signature requirement was met by the thumbs up emoji originating from Chris and his unique cell phone, Keenson. <laughs> nice people doing stupid things. Yeah. Yeah. Cost them 62000 Sure. Another nice Canadian doing not-so-nice things in a nice country of Japan. You ready for this? Yeah. Okay. We go to Japan where Tosho Daiji Kondo, that's the temple, in Nara was defaced by a Canadian teen. Oh. In a not-so-nice way, although it might have been nice. I'll describe it to you, Mally. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. A Canadian teenager has been questioned by police in Japan after carving letters on a wooden pillar of an 8th century temple. It's a pretty old temple. He's just an idiot. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. That's why it's dumb crime, <laughs> stupid criminals. It's like that British couple that were did, that did their initials in the Roman built. What was it? It was like some type of Roman. Was it a I don't temple? Know, it was like, I don't know what it was. It was like. I can't remember what it was. It was it was a historic site, and they mm -hmm. carved their initials into it. Yep. And now he can face up to he can face jail time. Oh, it, it, it's pretty good with this one. Mm -hmm. Police said that the 17 year old boy carved Julian on a pillar at the Tosho Daiji Kondo Temple Complex in Nara, Japan. The boy was caught carving the pillar with his fingernail, Mally. 
by a Japanese tourist who alerted temple staff. The temple is a designated UNESCO World Heritage Site. After the incident, which occurred on July 7th, the boy was questioned on suspicion of violating the cultural properties protection law. The carving was made on the pillar of the temple's Golden Hall, which is a designated national treasure, police told Japanese newspaper the Mainaichi. Uh, Police also told CNN that the boy said his actions did not intend to harm Japanese culture. Of course not. He's Canadian. He's polite. He's sorry. Uh, They added he is now with his parents who were with him when the vandalism occurred. They just weren't watching him very well. That's that's what was happening there. A monk at the temple told the newspaper that even though it may have been done without malice, it is still regrettable and sad. The temple is one of eight sites that make up the historic monuments of the ancient Nara. According to UNESCO's website, the monuments, which include Buddhist temples and Shinto shrines, provide a vivid picture of life in the Japanese capital in the 8th century, a period of profound political and cultural change. Nara itself is around 28 miles south of Kyoto and was once the capital of Japan. It remains popular with tourists. Another nice, nice country being defiled by a stupid person from a nice country. We'll continue on. Another nice group of nice people from a nice place being defiled by a stupid teen from people who are trying to do nice things. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. That one was a little bit confusing. I know. I, I, I'm trying to stay on the nice, naughty type deal. Gotcha. And it's, yeah, I'm, I, I might be confusing you a little bit. A teen is accused of stealing multiple cookies from a farm stand in Wayne County. <laughs> Wayne County, like Michigan? No, no, we're going back to Canada. We're going back to a a nice country. Okay. uh, That's got nice cookies, but uh, bad bad teens. Teens are going rotten in Canada now. I don't know what the deal is, but yeah, yeah. I don't know what the deal is, man. Uh, The Wayne County Sheriff's Office reports the arrest of an Ontario teen following investigation into a larceny at Lamora Farms in Ontario. It's now larceny to steal cookies, man. Yeah. 18-year-old Hayden Fisher was arrested for petty larceny after an investigation that began last month. The teen was charged with petty larceny after allegedly stealing baked goods from the farm stand twice in the same day. It was bad when it was once. It's horrible when it's twice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, was it one of those unintended attended um, farm stands that are along the road where they're just like, oh... It's basically an honor system. Yeah, like uh, leave a dollar, take a pastry yeah. type deal. It, it might it, it might be. I think so. Uh, he was arraigned and will answer the charge at a later date. That would be the honor system when it comes to being arraigned. <laughs> 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 leave a charge, leave a dollar for your, your charges, I guess. I don't know. They, I don't know how they do it in Canada. I think that's probably how they do it. Here's another... Nice country, big prick assistant mayor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> doing really bad things. The Helsinki deputy mayor is caught spray painting graffiti in a railway tunnel. We're going to oh. Finland, Mally. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm going to try to hit this name, but again, I'm not big on Finnish. 
That's what she said. <laughs> I have one of these for you. There you go. Um, Pavel Aranmaki, I believe it is. One of the four deputy mayors of Helsinki. There's four of them? Huh. How much is there to do in Helsinki? They have four deputy mayors. Yeah. Yeah. Is facing possible legal action and calls for him to pay compensation for damages and to resign. <laughs> For spainting, painting a little uh, graffiti on the uh, walls there. Uh, the deputy ma- deputy mayor of Finland's capital is facing possible legal action and calls for him to pay compensation for damages and to resign after he was caught red-handed spray-painting graffiti in a railway tunnel last weekend. The Finnish Transport Infrastructure Agency told public broadcaster YLE on Wednesday, that cleaning up graffiti illegally painted by Pavo Aranmaki, one of the four deputy mayors of Helsinki, cost the city around 3,500 euros or $3,830. It's a lot of paint. Yeah, it is. What the to, heck like, was he? cover up his stuff. <laughs> what the heck was he painting? Yeah. Here's what's more embarrassing, Mally. Aaron Maki is a 46-year-old man <laughs> who's out there painting this, this uh, railway tunnel. So Aaron Maki, who's 46, and a friend were caught by guards in a rail tunnel in eastern Helsinki on Friday just after they had completed graffiti, which Finnish street art experts said looked partly inspired by works seen in New York City in the 1970s. <laughs> so it wasn't even really original. Right. Yeah. Finland's largest newspaper, Helsingin Sanomat, published a photo of the large-scale graffiti in a tweet. Gosh, I got to see this. Because um, I thought you were going to say like he was defacing like someone's maybe like an opposing, you know, candidate, like their. Oh. <laughs> I just showed it to Mally. That's the the reaction you got, folks. Okay. Actually, it's not bad. It's not terrible, but it's not great. But he's great. 46. Why is he doing this? Is that worth $3,800, Mel? Uh, no. No, no, it's not. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's 46, and that's the best he could do. Um, it, it just, it looks like, well, it just looks like regular New York City graffiti. It's not, right. even, it's not even good New York graffiti. Uh-uh. Oh. It's not like that, what's that guy's name? Is it Banks or something like that? Yeah, Banksy is what. Who, yeah, yeah, Banksy. But Banksy does better. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, so Helsingin Sanomat or Sanomat uh, published a photo of that large-scale graffiti in a tweet, and a Facebook posting on Sunday. Aaron Maki, uh, who is known as a strong supporter of street art and as a creator of graffiti in his youth, he probably should have stuck to politics apologize for his stupid fooling around that's in quotes he's a former lawmaker and chairman of the left alliance and served as a minister for culture and sports in 2011 through 2014 police are investigating the act as vandalism and interference with rail traffic which had to be temporarily halted because of the incident the rail tunnel is used by cargo trains running to and from a helsinki port it wasn't immediately clear whether arnmaki uh, would face legal charges 
I have committed a crime and bear full responsibility for it, Aaron Maki told YLE on Monday, but has refused to resign from his post in the Helsinki City Council, where his left alliance party is backing him. So the government's behind his graffiti. <laughs> Interesting. The case has caused uproar and debate among Helsinki citizens and social media with a majority condemning but some also fiercely supporting the actions of the deputy mayor who's in charge of culture and leisure affairs in Helsinki, which is a city of how many, pe- how many people do you think are in Helsinki, Mally? I want you to take a guess at this. Uh, I'm going to go with 75,000. A little higher. Oh, a million. A little lower. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> 500,000. <laughs> You're close. 650,000 people in Helsinki. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the Finnish capital estimates or spends an estimated, oh my God, $710,000 annually to remove illegal graffiti throughout the city. That's a lot for Helsinki, Finland. Yeah. Well, we've got a lot of graffiti here in Detroit, but it's pretty cool. And I'd rather have, I'd rather look at cool graffiti than yeah. gang signs and stuff like that. Right. And, and you know what? In Detroit, they kind of do graffiti right. I mean, yeah. I know that sounds that sounds like a KFC commercial, <laughs> but I mean, Detroit, they don't do it well in Minneapolis. I'll tell you that much. We don't have good graffiti, but New York, Chicago, L.A., Detroit, I mean, those areas have great graffiti mm-hmm. and artistic graffiti. Yes. And I mean, you don't necessarily have to clean it up because the minute you do, you've got other other gangs coming in and tagging it and it doesn't look as good. But when you have street artists out there actually doing really good graffiti, well, you leave it up. Right. You know, uh, but $710,000 annually to remove illegal graffiti throughout the city. And is currently seeking to establish additional sanctioned sites for street art. Now that's fine. If you want to start a street art program for artists in Helsinki, and you have specific areas of the city, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I did. Yeah. Uh, today, Mel, on Tuesday is 7-Eleven. It's, Jul- okay. it's July 11th. It's also 7-Eleven day. Ah. And like at the most. Slushy 7-Eleven? There you go. At most ah. 7-Elevens, they're giving away free slushies or, or, or I'm sorry. Yeah. Free Slurpees because there's Slurpees at 7-Eleven or they're giving away free Big Gulps. Okay. Depending on the 7-Eleven near you. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, Mel, but 7-Eleven has bought a lot of the Speedway locations in the Midwest, including yes, here I in Minnesota. Yes, I knew that, actually, for some odd reason. I did know that. So, even if you go to your local Speedway, you might be able to get uh, something free today. Mm-hmm. So, check that out if you're in your uh, local area where there's a 7-Eleven. Now, we got a story today on Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals that has to do with 7-Eleven. <laughs> okay. On 7-Eleven Day. Turns out that a 7-Eleven clerk is busted for Big Gulp battery. <laughs> what? Yeah. I bet you didn't know this, Mel, but when you throw a beverage at someone, uh-huh. it's a crime. Yes, I knew that. Mm-hmm. Well, a patron was struck in the head by a drink thrown by a 7-Eleven worker. (laughs) (laughs) We'll tell you the details here. This happened back on July 5th. The big gulp was on the other foot in Florida, of course, on Sunday night, where a 7-Eleven worker was arrested for striking a female customer in the head 
with a large cup of lemonade. <laughs> oh, no. Cops allege that clerk, 35-year-old Miles Taz Jenkins, that's right, his middle name is Taz. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which should tell you everything you need to know there, Mel. Uh, got frustrated with a customer over payment and threw a big gulp filled with lemonade at the woman because that's mature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the incident was witnessed by three other customers, according to a criminal complaint, and Jenkins reportedly made spontaneous statements admitting to striking victim Tina Warren with the drink. At that point, you go refill it, Mally. <laughs> well, it's kind of a waste, so you might as well. Yeah, I would think so. Jenkins was charged with felony battery and booked into the county jail. Jenkins, who was released from custody this week, gave his address as a Clearwater Motel. (laughs) What did the woman do that pissed him off so much? I think we're about to find out. The alleged battery is being charged as a felony due to Jenkins having a prior conviction for sexual battery. Ooh. On a young girl, a crime for which he served several years in custody. So he was getting a break by working at 7-Eleven. Here's here's the uh, perpent question. Um, It doesn't say what she did. Oh, oh, he got frustrated with the customer overpayment on the big gulp. That's all she did. So she didn't want to pay, like, the full amount, or? I I guess. Or she was... was (laughs) I hate to say that she was dickering over the price. <laughs> Maybe she wanted to pay 59 cents and he wanted a dollar nine. That's your boy right there. Oh. Yeah. He looks creepy. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he kind of looks like the lead singer of Disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. We've got a guy at our 7-Eleven here in town that looks like Post Malone. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That'd be kind of fun. <laughs> He's got like the facial tattoos and everything. He's really nice. Oh my gosh. That's funny. Well, you go see Post Malone today for a uh, for a free Slurpee. <laughs> there we uh, go. Maybe he'll put a little something in it for you. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Never know. That'd be kind of a side Benny. Uh, we go back to Florida, Mally, where a Florida sheriff's employee. This is kind of a weird story. Okay. I don't know if there's anything funny about it, but it's kind of weird um, and disturbing. I'll put it that way, too. A Florida sheriff's employee said he was shot while two black men carjacked him and later admitted he shot himself while playing with his gun. Oh, my gosh. Takes all kinds, Mel. A man who was employed as a telecommunicator with the Hernando County Sheriff's Office in Florida was fired after he faked a story about getting shot while two black men carjacked him. But it turns out his gunshot wound was self-inflicted. 21-year-old, ah, figures, uh, young young and dumb, 21-year-old Dakota Wood has been charged with tampering with or fabricating physical evidence, false reports of commission of crimes, and discharging a firearm in public or residential property. Wood's troubles began when police responded to a call about an attempted carjacking and shooting. When they arrived on the scene, they found Wood suffering from a gunshot wound to his leg. He probably had it coming. Uh, Wood initially told police that that he was the victim of an attempted carjacking. Uh, Wood said the men displayed a firearm and made a threat to kill him before shooting him in the thigh. This according to a press release. 
Wood said the shooter collected the shell casing prior to fleeing the area on foot. That's a little too convenient, right? Exactly. Yeah. After being shot, Wood said he obtained his personal firearm and fired approximately five rounds in self-defense. Wood further advised he believed he hit one of the suspects several times, which you would think there would be blood somewhere if he did, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Following the shooting, Wood advised he relocated from the park to the intersection of Cortez Boulevard and Showline Boulevard to create a safe distance from the suspects. Wood also told police that the suspects were black. But while being interviewed at the hospital, Wood confessed that he lied and was instead at the park because he was having relationship troubles with his girlfriend and was playing with his gun when he accidentally shot himself. I think a lot of guys have done that. They're thinking about their girlfriend playing with their gun and it accidentally goes off. That guy just needs a fidget spinner. (laughs) He really does. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He added that he invented the carjacking story because he didn't want to get in trouble. I think he'd be in less trouble if he just was honest from the get-go. Yeah. You know what? I had my service piece with me and I screwed up and shot myself. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's probably not the first and won't be the last. That's right. Uh, these types of situations are relatively rare, unfortunate, and unpleasant. Hernando County Sheriff Al Ninhus, I believe it is, said in the press release, My administration, however, has a very public reputation of holding my people accountable for their actions. The public can be confident that when an employee does something of this nature, they will forfeit their ability to be associated with the Hernando County Sheriff's Office. That's probably for the best. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, well, from one gun incident to another, uh, we go from a cop that accidentally shoots himself to the leg to a tycoon who pulled a shotgun on an Amazon driver. We have one Amazon driver here in our neighborhood who drives a little fast, and we had a neighbor who flaked out. Now, by a little fast, I mean maybe going 32 and a 30 instead of 30 and a 30. Uh-huh. I mean, he, you know, he was trying to cut corners and get, you know, get back on time. Right. And we had a, a neighbor who absolutely lost his shit, Mally. I mean, he he ran behind this guy's van and threw a beer at it at 9 a.m. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. We went a little Florida ourselves the other day here in Minnesota. Um, <laughs> it was it was quite the, you know, as I'm sitting sipping my coffee and feeding a wicket, I, uh, I got to witness quite the uh, event the other day. We have people that speed down our street because they're bypassing the lights on the next street over. Yeah. And once in a while, we'll yell to slow down because we have little kids on our street. Right. So one day, this guy just, this guy and girl just go speeding down our street. And Derek yells, slow down. And the girl goes, F you. And Derek's like, real original. (laughs) (laughs) Well, see, if you're speeding excessively. (laughs) Right, right. If you're speeding excessively, he's completely in the right oh yeah and any of us around here would do that but the amazon guy's going 32 and a 30 yeah it's not you know that's nothing no it's nothing but this guy was kind of wound up about something i don't know maybe he got turned down the night before from the old lady or whatever it was or they lost his package (laughs) right right or they lost his package whatever it was and then he chucked a beer yeah and it was a beer folks it wasn't you know it wasn't a soda it was a beer at 9 a.m. 
So you're trying to defend the kids, but you're chucking a beer at 9 a.m. at right. the Amazon driver. Um, who, by the way, hit the brakes and got out of his van. Oh, at that he point did? And, and <laughs> yelled, what the are you right. doing? Um, which made for really great neighborhood drama at 9 a.m., let me tell you. Even the chipmunk was interested. <laughs> it was that good. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, you know we, all, we all look out for each other. In the neighborhood, we all look out, especially at summertime when the, when the kids are outside and they're playing. Right. We're looking out for them too. So if the guy was was excessive, we all would have yelled at him, right? But this guy was just wound a little too tight, and and one of the neighbors even came up to that neighbor and kind of put his arms around him and said, "Hey, buddy, you know you need to you, you need to <laughs> calm it down a little bit. Just bring it down a notch because uh, that was a little excessive." You know. Was it the day after uh, July 4th? So, like, he was still hungover? No, this was actually oh. beginning of June. Oh. This was right as, as school was getting out. So, you know, I mean, some of the kids were still in school. So, I don't know gotcha. what I don't know what his issue was. I think he just, he was like a, a dog without a bone, you know. he was Yeah. Yeah, he just, uh, he was chasing everything. So, I don't mm-hmm. know. I'm just like, like you said, I think he had a thing against Amazon drivers. <laughs> yeah, it's just bizarre. But chucking a beer, I mean, you know, yeah. find something good to throw, not a beer. Right. Uh, there's better things to throw. This guy, however, uh, this multi-millionaire media executive, Mally, had something better to throw at uh, at the Amazon driver. It happened to be some buckshot. Just yeah. saying. Yeah. A tycoon pulled a shotgun on an Amazon driver. He's 70 years old. Wait, the driver or the tycoon? The tycoon <laughs> is 70 years old and brandished a weapon outside a Pennsylvania mansion. Uh, this media executive was arrested for pointing a short-barreled shotgun at a woman attempting to deliver an Amazon package to a sprawling Pennsylvania mansion. Okay, that's a little out of control. Yeah, just a tiny bit. Yeah. According to investigators, the 30-year-old victim told cops that she arrived at the 72-acre estate in July on, on July 1st rather to deliver an Amazon package to the resident of 70-year-old Stephen Saslow. The woman told police that Saslow granted her access to his property by means of opening the security gate to the sprawling property. So what's the problem? Right which includes a 14,000-square-foot home and a large heated indoor pool with a retractable roof. Located near the Pocono Mountains, the Saslow Estate was put on the market last year for $3.5 million. Pretty cheap, but it's Pennsylvania. Right. As detailed in a Pennsylvania State Police report, the victim said that she had parked her own Dodge Caravan in front of the residence in order to deliver said package when Saslow unexpectedly brandished a short barrel shotgun black in color with his left hand and pointed it at her person. The woman told cops that while at gunpoint, she raised her hands claiming she was from Amazon all while still seated inside the vehicle. Additionally, the woman said that her two children were seated in the rear portion of the vehicle, Mally, during the midst of this incident. Oh, oh my Following Saslow retrieving said package from the victim via his opposing hand, the victim stated that he pointed the firearm at her once again and told her to vacate the premises, to which she complied, according to police. Whoa! 
Does he not know that Amazon also has those delivery, the drivers that drive their own personal cars? Yeah, contractors. Yeah. I, I maybe or maybe not. he's senile. I, I'm thinking there's something wrong here. Yeah. Pennsylvania troopers arrested Saslo on last Saturday on a reckless endangerment charge. While Saslo is not named in the report, a police spokesperson confirmed to the smoking gun that Saslo was the arrestee in the misdemeanor case. Saslo is a veteran media industry figure whose career included ad sales and the creation of several media firms. Most recently, Saslo purchased and later shuttered newspapers in Oregon, including Medford's Mail Tribune, which closed earlier this year. In addition to his Henryville, Pennsylvania spread, Saslo last year paid $3.8 million for a lakefront home in Florida. There's a shock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Florida, man, he owns a gun. Uh, and one of his firms owns a twin-engine beach airplane that seats six. On his Facebook page, Saslo recommends a Porsche dealer near his Pennsylvania residence. And evidently, he didn't hold that guy up either to get a delivery of his Porsche. Who knew? Mm. Um, I'll show you a picture of the guy here. He uh, he looks happier here uh, than he did when he was holding up the Amazon driver. Oh, yeah. yeah. He looks younger than 70. He must color his hair. I think he does, yeah. I think he's probably got a little just for men working for him. That's for sure. We go from shooting to stabbing, Mally. <laughs> that's Ooh. how we work on this program. A CVS worker stabs to death a man who tried to shoplift in New York City. This uh, story comes to us from Margo. Margo loaded us up this week with stories. Oh, that's nice of her. Yeah, that was nice of her. Uh, we go to New York where a CVS worker in New York City stabbed to death a man who tried to shoplift from the store. Maybe a little bit of an overreaction, just a tiny bit. Uh, The incident happened at the CVS Pharmacy, located just north of Times Square at 1619 Broadway, around 12.30 a.m. on Thursday. The CVS worker allegedly stabbed a 50-year-old man in the torso. Ooh. Ow. Uh, That's that's the slow way to die, by the way, folks. Uh, The man was pronounced dead at the hospital. Oh. Yeah. Scotty, I believe this is N.O., A 46-year-old Brooklyn resident was arrested and charged with murder and criminal possession of a weapon after the stabbing, police said. A CVS spokesperson said they are cooperating with police with their investigation into the incident, which just goes to show you not everybody gets away with shoplifting at CVS. Yeah. I think people thought it was an easy target. It's not. That's going to lead us into a long string of robbery stories, Mally. Mm. Two of which I'm going to question, where were you when this happened? Okay. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Our first story has to do with a suspect wearing a onesie and smashing wine bottles and chasing an employee through a store. (laughs) We go to Columbus, Ohio, not that far away from where you're at, where police in Ohio said a customer chased an employee around a store after smashing two bottles of wine on the floor caught on camera. (laughs) You weren't testing wine in Columbus, Ohio, were you? No, I was no. not. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, the Columbus Division of Police said the incident occurred Wednesday afternoon at a store in Columbus. Police did not provide the name of the retail location. Surveillance footage from the store shows a suspect dressed in what appeared to be a ladybug outfit causing chaos. <laughs> <laughs> the ladybug wine stealer. Uh, The suspect became irate and threatened to hit the employee with a bottle of wine, police said in a news release. 
The suspect smashed two bottles of wine on the floor at the feet of the employee and then chased him around the store. Probably because the vintage wasn't good enough, is my guess. I'm just speculating. I don't know. Uh, The suspect threw a bottle of wine at the employee attempting to strike him, and it smashed to the floor at his feet. Just a bad aim, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Police said the suspect left the scene before officers arrived. The second story, Mally, I'm thinking is probably, uh, I'm thinking it, it had to be you. Okay. Another wine store owner, by the way, <laughs> says... What, you think I'm angry. I'm an angry drunk or something. No, no, no. I just think you're trying to get your hands on some good wine. Um, a wine store owner says a thief drilled a hole in his roof, descended by a rope, and stole bottles worth $600,000. <laughs> uh, it was like something out of Ocean's Eleven, the store manager said. This mm-hmm. is where I really see you. I think I... I think you probably, this was probably you, I think. Here's the details. A thief broke into the wine store in Los Angeles by drilling a hole in the roof. They then used rope to descend into the wine cellar, making off with expensive bottles. Around $600,000 worth of wine and liquor was stolen, according to the store's owner. Uh, It was was involved now. It's like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. Right? (laughs) You're lower down. Watching I, out for the I think you're a lasers. fan of those movies, aren't you? <laughs> I am, actually. See? <laughs> the new one's coming out soon. You might have a few more ways to get into that wine store. Just saying. Just saying. <laughs> but they did. They descended into the cellar using rope and making off with those expensive bottles. Surveillance footage from Lincoln Fine Wines, which is located in Los Angeles's Venice neighborhood, captures the start of the break-in that began around midnight last Friday. Footage shared by the wine store on Instagram shows a masked individual, that's how Mally would do it, wearing Mm -hmm. a black hoodie, which she's got plenty of those from investigating. Yes, I do. A red baseball cap and red gloves because she's fashionable. (laughs) Uh, Climbing on storage containers to get access to the roof. The person then cut through the ceiling into the wine cellar, leaving behind a five by three foot hole. Hmm. Uh, before lowering themselves into the cellar, that according to owner Nazmul Hawk, uh, he told that to the Los Angeles Times, the burglary lasted approximately four hours, probably because Mally needed to stop and sample. <laughs> Just saying. With the thief looting some of the most expensive bottles while bypassing more accessible bottles like Dom Perignon Champagne. Now, Mal... Why yes. do we pass up the Dom Perignon? You can buy that anywhere. See? <laughs> <laughs> the thief tripped a sensor at about 4 a.m., alerting the store owner, who said he turned up at the store 30 minutes later to see shattered glass, empty shelves, and some abandoned crates. More than 600 bottles in total were stolen. Wow. How did you get all those out of there? <laughs> Deep pockets. That's right. The owner told the LA Times that approximately 60% of his high-end stock was stolen with the total loss amounting to about 600 grand. The store's manager, Nick Martinell, told CNN that many of the bottles were irreplaceable. Now see, high-end taste. That sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. The theft was movie-like, the manager said, telling CNN it was like something out of Ocean's Eleven. We just couldn't believe it. Hawk also expressed disbelief. It's very hard for me to digest. He told CNN, all my hard work snatched within a couple of hours. 
The incident's being investigated by L.A. police. Lincoln Fine Wines and the LAPD did not immediately respond to Insider's request for comment because they're still trying to figure out how Mally did it. That's going to be a fancy cocktail party. I'm telling you. Yeah. See? What do you serve with all that wine? Caviar. Hmm? <laughs> I See? hate caviar. Yeah. Yeah. No. Nasty. Yeah. No, I, I would think it would be something more like a dinner party. Oh, so I would say cheese. Oh, very nice to start. Mm-hmm. Or, or do you have like yeah, a cheese and bread? And mm-hmm. now you're making me hungry. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, after you get all loaded up there, Mal, on all that wine. <laughs> so instead of bites of caviar with your wine, Mally, how about a bite out of a jewelry store employee? It's not as salty as caviar, um, but they're salty nonetheless. Okay. That, does that sound good? <laughs> My mind just went somewhere. <laughs> uh, oh, I know. Oh, oh, oh boy, I, I didn't mean it like that. Um, well, you know what I mean. Uh, a suspect bites an employee during a robbery at a jewelry store inside a Fresno mall. It's it's wine and jewelry. I mean, it almost sounds like you're making the rounds here, Mel. <laughs> yeah. Fresno wine, LA. diamonds. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a practically a spree here. We go to Fresno, California, where a suspect managed to get away with expensive jewelry after biting an employee at a store inside a Fresno mall on Thursday night. The robbery happened around 7 p.m. at Devon's Jewelers inside the Fashion Fair Mall near First Street and Shaw Avenue. Fresno police say a suspect was trying to leave the store with stolen jewelry before being stopped by an employee. Now, Mally, a scenario for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're working at Devon's Jewelers. Okay. You see somebody grab some expensive jewelry. Right. Okay, now, is your job really on the line if you don't stop this person? Well, I thought nowadays it's not. Like, you're supposed to let them go. Right. That's what I thought. You, you, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily have to, you know, put yourself in, in harm's way. Right. But my feistiness, though, if it's my own business and I own the place, yep. I'm probably going to go after them. You would think, yeah. Although, isn't there insurance policies set up so that, you know, if you do lose something like that, you're reimbursed? Well, yes, but there's still that you just want to punch them. Yeah. <laughs> the, the adrenaline's flowing. You know what flowing. I mean? Like, ah, don't take my stuff. Yeah, the, the adrenaline's flowing. You want to get this stuff yeah. back, right? Right. So this employee steps in the way and goes, hey, you Mama Luke, I'm, I'm going to take that away from you. Uh, or however you handle it, I don't know. Uh, so during the confrontation, officials say the suspect hit the employee twice before managing to escape the store with the jewelry. So trying to recover it probably didn't pay off. The store's employee suffered ma- uh, minor injuries. Officers are still working to find the suspect. So in the end, the suspect did get away with the jewelry. But I feel like lately there have been more thefts like that because they know that the rule basically is let them go. Do not, you know, pursue them. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I feel like there there's more and more cases of, you know, people r- ripping off these high end places and, you know, normal places as well. But because oh, yeah. no one's going to stop them. Right. Right. You know, you see the security guards and they're just kind of standing there. Well, that's why them go by. That's why even up until six months to a year ago, people were doing these flash mobs where they would run into like Best Buy and mm-hmm. they would start ripping TVs off 
left and right, you'd have 15 people go into a Best Buy. They'd all grab a TV and run out. What's what's loss prevention going to do? Right. You know, they can't stop everybody. Mm hmm. You know, and, and that's that's what brought that type of behavior on. But you don't see it as much anymore as you used to because they started figuring out how to get police on the scene to help with that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. that's that's that and that's that. Um, I have an interesting story here for you, Mally. Okay. You know how when you go to a state and you have the tourism board right there at the airport? Yeah. And they have like little samples of of the state there. Maybe they have certain foods for you to try or, you know, somebody has a plate or a platter of food, especially when you go to foreign countries. It'll be like, oh, mm-hmm. here, try the local fare. Oh, here, here's a, a little, uh, here's a little toy or a little something to remember us by or a little, you know, a little sample of the local fare. Here's a seashell. Here's a little vial of sand. Here's a little whatever to remember us by. That type of I gotta start paying attention because I don't remember that. You don't remember those things? Okay. <laughs> With like food and stuff? No. Yeah, little welcome centers. You ever seen? Well, those? I know welcome centers, but I didn't sure. know they offered you food. Oh yeah, well, when you go to sometimes when you go to foreign countries or sometimes you know, but you have like here in the states, you have welcome centers, right? Mm-hmm. In states, okay. Well, Florida's kicking it up a notch, Mally. Okay. At their Florida centers or their welcome centers in Florida, they want you to get the Floridian experience. All right. As it turns out, Florida is now adding to their welcome centers mobile meth labs. <laughs> Are you serious? Well, at one at one <laughs> Florida welcome center, I'm like what? Somebody added a mobile meth lab. Oh, so that you too could get the riding the snake experience. <laughs> <laughs> We go to Nassau County, Florida, Mally, where the Florida Highway Patrol busted and arrested two people who thought maybe people would like to try a little bit of meth when they came to Florida. They arrested two people for trafficking and manufacturing methamphetamine near a Florida welcome center. Because at first I thought you meant the, what is it called with that fake stuff that when people are trying to get off of like heroin and meth, they take something else? Oh, um... It's either tramadone or methadone. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I thought you were saying was that they were offering that at the welcome <laughs> centers. That's why I was like, are you serious? What? Oh, no. This is a real thing. Yeah. No. The real oh. stuff. Yeah. They're, you know, if you want to get them hooked, get them hooked on the way into the state. That's true. You know, and then they can they can find it wherever they want to find it. But you got them hooked first. So then <laughs> on their way back out, they'll come see you again. Mm. Right. I guess. On Thursday, the Florida Highway Patrol conducted a traffic stop on a vehicle suspected of having an illegal window tint. That's how they get you. Mm-hmm. Right. The vehicle was stopped on I-95 southbound near the Florida Welcome Center. At the time of the stop, Florida Highway Patrol says the driver, a 42-year-old female and a 41-year-old male passenger, were on the way to Apopka, Florida from Charleston, South Carolina. Florida Highway Patrol says the during the investigation, the trooper noticed that both individuals displayed numerous visual and behavioral indicators of the illegal use of narcotics. Upon requesting consent to search the vehicle, the trooper located liquid and crystal methamphetamine along with the materials to use to make both. The chemicals used to make 
methamphetamine are hazardous, flammable, and pose various health risks to anyone inhaling or ingesting it. Can you imagine driving hundreds of miles with that in your car? Ugh. And with the windows closed? Ugh. That would be horrible. Mm-hmm. According to Florida Highway Patrol, methamphetamine can also cause severe burns if they come in contact with the skin. Florida Highway Patrol says both suspects were transported to the Nassau County Jail and will be charged with trafficking, possession, and manufacturing of methamphetamine. By the way, they were also giving away free uh, free lizards. <laughs> yeah, so that was part of the whole welcome to Florida thing. Mm. You know, just just a little. I'll just take from, a T-shirt. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. T-shirts yeah. are safe. T-shirts are fine. Yeah. Uh, final two stories today on Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals, Mally, are not safe for work. So if you have uh, kids listening, why you have kids listening to Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get them out of the room. Uh, if you're listening at work, probably put in your your um, your you know your earbuds or or turn down your your listening device because uh, we're uh, we're about to get a little bit on the risque side in five, four, three, two. And one. Uh, Believe it or not, NBC News published this next story. Okay. (laughs) There's a foot fondler on the loose in the Lake Tahoe area, Mally. (laughs) I always question people who want to fondle your feet. I mean, I bet you can make a lot of money, though. You think? Oh, yeah. I mean, my 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 podiatrist does. I mean, he wants to see my shark. Yeah, but like feet fetish. I hear you know, pictures of your feet, you can doing make, stuff with your feet. Women can make a lot of money at that. I know. Yeah. I got to start having less of a moral standard. Right? You can <laughs> make a lot. With some of this stuff. You can make a lot of money. Just saying. Yeah. Wear a pair of socks around and yeah. then just put them in the mail. <laughs> yeah. For like a week and put them in the mail and make yourself yeah. a couple thousand. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, there's a, a lot of freaky guys out there. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Hey, meanwhile, we're really making some people excited out there. Uh, a foot fondler's on the loose in the Lake Tahoe area. Two women staying at a resort in State Line, Nevada, reported intrusions on their rooms on Sunday and Monday morning, according to the Douglas County Sheriff's Office. People in Lake Tahoe, Nevada, are being cautioned to secure their residences as a foot fondling intruder has been making their way around the area, Mally. So are they like asleep and some guys massaging their feet or what? Oh, we're getting there. Okay. Yeah, don't don't shoot your load before we get there, Mel. <laughs> <laughs> it's a slow build, Mel. Oh. Uh, the woman woke up to the intruder fondling their feet, the sheriff's office said. Oh. Yeah, even your puppy agrees. Yeah, sorry, that's Clarabelle. <laughs> no, that's okay. Clarabelle, you, you preach. Uh, in both incidents, the women were staying on ground floor rooms when the intruder is believed to have gained entry through unsecured exterior screen doors. Sounds like a high buck place, Mally. Yeah. Yeah. A description of the suspect was not released, probably because you're so freaked out that your feet are being touched that you're not right. focusing on the face, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The Douglas County Sheriff's Office said it was actively investigating the incidents and asked members of the public to submit tips if they have any leads. 
Well, his fingers were touching my feet, and I just kept swinging. (laughs) What tip do you want? Yeah. Note to self, do not have a room on the first floor. Right? Yeah. Yeah. In the meantime, residents and guests staying in the Lake Tahoe area are reminded to secure all exterior doors to their homes and rented rooms, the sheriff's office went on to say. Beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> I wonder, I've always wondered to myself when I read a story like this about foot yeah. fondlers, what they would think of my Charco foot. Because it, it is not the best looking foot in the world. Oh. Because, you know, you've got an arch, right? Uh-huh. In your foot. Yep. I've got a bowl. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the bone where your arch is juts outward. So I wonder if a foot, is that like a foot fondler's worst nightmare? I like how you're asking me. <laughs> yeah, I, don't I, don't I don't know. I don't know. I mean, know. because for, I would think for a foot fondler, that would be, <laughs> that'd either be like, um, I'm trying to think of how to put this. It would either be the, it would either be the weirdest, sexiest thing ever, like, like, a, like finding a unicorn, or right. it would be, like the most grotesque elephant man thing ever, and you'd you'd probably watch him throw up. You know? Yeah, I can see that one extreme or the other. There's not like, no, there's not an in-between. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. If there's there's any foot fondlers out there, (laughs) email me, Tim at darknessradio.com. We're going to get a bunch of anonymous... Yeah, I, I don't care if it's anonymous. You send it through an anonymous uh, email uh, source. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I, I'm just curious. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I would think it would be grotesque. <laughs> I would think you would be repulsed and feel like you want to lose your lose your breakfast. And finally, uh, got to think. I believe this was Margot who sent this in. And by the way, Margot, this is freaky deaky of the highest uh, caliber. Thank you. A, a guy who gave his girlfriend lingerie-clad lap dances faces five years in jail. I want you to dissect that for a moment, Mally, before I move on. Okay, so the guy's wearing lingerie and he yeah. gave a lap dance? Yes, ma'am. Is he in, like, a southern state where they have those weird laws from, like, 1800s that make it illegal for stuff? Because uh, I'm trying to think why it would be illegal for him to give a lap dance in, uh, in lingerie. No, this happened in Bangkok, Thailand. Oh. Yeah. Let's let's read it and find out, shall we? Life streamer Ice Poseidon has been told he can't leave Thailand until he faces a judge in 2024. Wow. After offending public decency with a bizarre lingerie-clad lap dance. This is why we say it's not safe for work. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the story, Mally. Once one of the most popular YouTube live streamers in the world, Ice Poseidon is facing jail after running into trouble with Thai police after, or by rather by performing a lingerie-clad lap dance for his girlfriend in a Bangkok restaurant. The streamer, whose real name is Paul Danino, or Danino rather, has had multiple run-ins with law enforcement due to his insistent insistence on live streaming everything he does leading his fans to call in fake bomb threats and active shooter reports everywhere he goes oh that's got to be convenient yeah yeah 
His latest escapade was triggered when he started dancing in front of his girlfriend, Kimberly, in the Thai restaurant wearing just a sheer body stocking, which had to be just beautiful. <laughs> well, if it's sheer, I mean, you're seeing everything then. Yeah. Yeah. So that's basically inde indecent exposure, exposure correct? Yeah. yeah. The furious restaurant owner stormed in and told De Nino and his group that they cannot do this in Thailand. Uh, she told them to stop filming and demanded that they hand over their passports. The restaurant manager had also called the local police. It later emerged, and De Nino and his entourage were arrested. Mugshot with pressured admission of guilt and apology, he wrote. Guilty of what? No idea. No one telling me what the law was that I broke. Uh, he says he later found out that he was being charged with distribution of obscene content because the lap dance was streamed. He added that Kimberly is actually facing the most heat because police said her dress was showing too much breast and that it was too sexual for the public. De Nino said that after being arrested, he had been thrown into a filthy cell and was given a bucket with poop already in it to use as a toilet. Ew. Yeah. Well, you don't want to get arrested in Thailand. They have no. one of the worst jail systems in the world. That's, that's the last place you want to go to jail. He posted an abject apology on Twitter saying, I did not know the severity of the actions that I have caused. And I was just trying to have fun. I'm sorry. We were drunk. We were in a room. I just didn't understand the severity of what I've done. De Nino has since shared updates on Discord, claiming he had to pay everyone's bail, which amounted to $12,000, and that he could be stuck in Thailand until the case comes to court next year. We all face heavy charges with a lot of jail time, he said. If I get five years, I'm just going to kill myself. I will not be able to survive Thai jail, he told his fans. Uh, he told them that he didn't feel able to stream more content until the trial was resolved. I'm in mental torment, he said. I cannot be myself. There you I'm go. sorry, but if you're going to a foreign country, you should know better. You yeah. should brush up on their laws. Yeah. And you should know not to do something like that in a foreign country. Right. I mean, come on. You know, Goodness you, gracious. You know you're going to end up uh, with some sort of huge punishment like that. Right. I wouldn't even do that in America. No. <laughs> I don't even do it in my own home. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you, because you know there's going to be some public indecency law. Yeah. If you do that here. So why, why bother? I don't know. But that's why it's dumb crimes and stupid criminals, Mally. Yeah. He sounded kind of dramatic. I won't be able to survive five years. Not in Thai jail. Don't make me a lady boy. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, but hey. You had it coming. Sorry, yep. Mr. De Nino. That's the breaks. Them's the breaks. That'll do it for Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals today. I want to thank Mally Fox for filling in today. Tomorrow, we've got Supernatural News, Mel. Mm, fun. Yeah, lots of fun there. And then, and then Thursday, we've got a huge program on tap. Uh, we have three of the casts of the Legion of Exorcists joining us. Oh, very cool. Yeah, we'll have a roundtable going on on Thursday. We'll talk about the season that was for the Legion of Exorcists. We'll recap it. And uh, we will talk a little bit about the, we'll just call it the status of spirituality in uh, in America, in the world. We'll talk a little bit about uh, whether demons are as much of a reality as we like to think in America and, and whether their workload is as huge as we've been told in the media. So that'll that'll come up 
uh, on Thursday's show. That'll be Thursday's show. Scott Johnson will join us um, along with uh, uh, Bishop Rita will be with us. And uh, the third part of our show for Thursday, Reverend Sean Whittington, who's been on the show before. So, uh, so there you go. Scott Johnson, uh, Bishop Rita, and the Reverend Sean Whittington, all from uh, Legion of Exorcists. So, mm. Yeah. So uh, big week, big week this week. I want to thank Nick Edwards for being on the show today from True Crime Garage. A reminder uh, to check out the links in the description of this program. Uh, support True Crime Garage. They have that big show on today as well, uh, talking about... Um, um, Richard Allen and talking about the the new evidence that's come out against Richard Allen and the situation around Richard Allen and the killings of Libby and Abby. So check out that program as well. We have a link to True Crime Garage. We have a link to the book, uh, The Delphi Murders, and we also have a link to the different charities that Nick Edwards is a part of. So check out those links in the description of the program. Uh, Mally, ParanormalGirl.com, correct? Yes. And uh, there's some recipes there. There's also some uh, merchandise to check out. Mally will be at Michigan Paracon. So we'll have a link for Michigan Paracon and a link for ParanormalGirl.com as well. We'll see you tomorrow uh, for Supernatural News on Darkness Radio. For Mally Fox, I'm Tim Dennis. Thank you so much for tuning in today for the best in true crime podcasting. This has been True Crime Tuesday.